Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's important to remember what the Lord has done for us. It's also important for us to remember how blessed we are. You can never be any more blessed than you'll be when you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to keep that in the forefront of our mind. Amen. Thank you, praise singers. Uh, youth class, you may be dismissed at this time. God bless you today. Good to see such a good crowd in the house this morning. If you were here on Friday, and particularly if you worked during the day, that was a long day. And uh, famous last words, I will try, Sister Pat, to be uh, brief. But I'm going to minister the word of the Lord this morning. Famous last words. And I'm going to call your attention to the book of Ezekiel and uh, chapter number four. Ezekiel chapter number four. Did anybody know the longest book by word count in the Bible? Somebody said Ezekiel. No. The longest book, not chapter. Jeremiah. Very good. It is the book of Jeremiah. Do you happen to know the second longest book by word count? First is Jeremiah. Next is Genesis. And then we have the book of Psalms. And number four we have right here, the book of Ezekiel. Fourth longest, uh, longest book in the Bible. I was, we were just reading that at, at home uh, maybe a month or so ago, going through... We were at that point going through Ezekiel, and I was reading, thinking, boy, compared to some other books, these are some long chapters and, and, and a lengthy book. But there are a lot of things that caught my attention because the Word of God is rich, and uh, it's a wonderful thing. And I'm going to read this to you. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, beginning at uh, verse number 9, please. You there? Say amen. Amen. Be quiet, son. I'm reading up here. Good boy, son. Ezekiel 4, 9. Take thou also unto thee wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and fitches and put them in one vessel. Sounds like bean soup almost. That's not what's going on here. And make thee bread thereof. According to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon thy side. I'll be giving more context to what we're talking about here as I get into this. Three hundred and ninety days shalt thou eat thereof, and thy meat, or thy food, which thou shalt eat, shall be by weight. Twenty shekels a day. This is meager portions, and they're being meted out here. Twenty shekels a day, from time to time, shalt thou eat it. Thou shalt drink also by water, uh, water by measure. The sixth part of an hin, uh, from time to time, shalt thou drink. And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes, and thou shalt bake it with dung. That cometh out of a man in their sight. Oh. And the Lord said, yes, I need a word from the Lord right now. Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread. Somebody said defiled bread. Among the Gentiles, whither I will drive them. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, my soul hath, my soul hath not been polluted. He's kind of, his verbiage doesn't mean the same thing, but kind of like Peter in, in, in Acts 10. I've, I've, not eat, I've not partaken of that which is common and unclean. And the Lord says, don't call what I've touched common, mister. 
Behold, this, he wasn't talking in the same vein, but similar thought came to my mind. My soul hath not been polluted, for from my youth even up till now have I not eaten of that which dieth of itself, or is torn in pieces, Ezekiel speaking, neither came their abominable flesh into my mouth. Then he said unto me, the Lord, Lo, I have given thee cow's dung for man's dung in replacement of that, and thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. Sounds equally delicious, doesn't it? Verse 16, Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread. And when he says staff of bread, that's talking about uh, that, that, that minimal something of, of sustenance upon which life can be sustained. The staff, you lean upon a staff, in, in other words. I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight, meted out, and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment, that they may want bread and water and be astonished or astonished one with another and consume or waste away for their iniquity. There's a reason for this defiled bread that they're eating, although the truth was they already were consuming defiled bread. But God, who is rich in mercy, was carrying out a plan, and he was using this this example, this, it was a reality though, and it would be, this was a prophecy here. He would use this defiled bread to call these people that were so swept up in idolatry that hopefully their attention would be drawn to it and they would realize the gravity of their sin and he was giving them one more chance to repent. And I'm going to preach for a little while this morning on the subject of defiled bread. Lord Jesus, bless the ministry of the word today. Help me, help me not to be long. Oh, Lord, help me not to be long-winded, but uh, help me to say what needs to be said this morning. Lord, to bring forth your word, and I pray that the people listening, whether here or online, would receive the word of the Lord. Minister by your spirit today, I pray, God, in Jesus' name. Somebody said, in Jesus' name. Jesus. Amen. And as you're seated, let's give one more round of applause unto the Lord, please. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. Oh, we praise you and we bless you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. You are great and you're greatly to be praised, Lord God. And we are blessed, God, by your compassion. We're blessed by your rich mercy, Lord, and we give you thanks today, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. If you have not already. Thank you, Jesus. Fourth longest book in the Bible. Interestingly, the name of Ezekiel is not mentioned in any other book of the Bible. Ezekiel was a prophet of God, a powerful prophet of God, one of the major prophets. Uh, he was also a priest uh, of the priesthood lineage, and so he was very familiar with the the temple system. He was a contemporary of Daniel. Uh, uh, Daniel was taken in the captivity of the first siege on Jerusalem in 605 B.C. Uh, Ezekiel was taken along with 10,000 others in the second siege on Jerusalem in 597 uh, B.C. And then finally, he's prophesying about this third siege that's going to take place in 586 B.C., at which time the city of Jerusalem would just be leveled uh, and destroyed, and uh, as, well as, as well as the temple. Um, 
The children of Israel were going to be taken into exile. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied uh, over and over to the children of Israel that the Babylonians were going to come. These Chaldeans were going to come, and they were going to take them captive, and he commanded them uh, not to resist. He commanded them uh, not to wage a war with these people, uh, mostly not to disobey what he's telling them, uh, or they were going to see some, some very uh, dire consequences if they did. But rather, Jeremiah commanded uh, the children of Israel to, to allow themselves to be taken captive because uh, they were going to be provided for during this captivity. And indeed, uh, this was a different situation than most situations of people being taken into captivity or, or, or people as, as exiles. The children of Israel during this captivity were treated relatively well compared to many other situations. They lived fairly normal lives. Many of them were allowed to farm land, and apparently the prophet Ezekiel uh, even had his own house. There are uh, many historical markers in the book of Ezekiel, which is a beneficial thing to help us to see precisely what was happening uh, and when during history, and we can say, therefore, with pretty, uh, pretty accurate uh, timing that the book was written between the years of 593 B.C. and 570 B.C., that third siege of Jerusalem at 586 happening right in the middle of that. And the, the man of God, Ezekiel, was, was quite an interesting man. When I read through Scripture, I really can't see a time that he was talking to another human being except with a word from the Lord. The only times I see him speaking in Scripture, at least all that's recorded in Scripture, uh, he is either talking with the Lord. There's a little bit of ring happening. If, if there's a sound man back there in these monitors, you can probably lower them a little bit up here. The only times that, that he seems to be opening his mouth was when he was talking to the Lord or when he had a word from God and was speaking to people. And he was a revered prophet. And you can imagine if there's anybody you know, and the only time they open their mouth and speak to you is with a word from God, when that man of God does open his mouth, I'm going to be pretty interested in what he has to say. <laughs> if this is going to be a word from the Lord. Another interesting thing uh, is that he, he often would preach without, preach for lack of better terms, without using words, but he would use uh, illustrations or you might say action uh, sermons. I remember Brother T.F. Tenney uh, saying several times, preach Jesus and if necessary, use words. And he's talking about the fact that, that our example uh, preaches. We are uh, living epistles and, and our example, our behavior should be exemplary and should minister uh, to those people around us. Uh, but he was actually preaching sermons in this way. And as I was thinking about this, if anyone has ever seen, you know who Mr. Bean is? Anybody? And he had this, this, this Christmas uh, program and he was in this department store. And I guess he doesn't use very many words either. He'll just go, and stuff like that. And he's in this department store at Christmas time. And all you see is, are his hands. And he's, and he's got uh, soldiers and armies and there's tanks. And he's going, and brings a tank in. You know, and he's, Helicopter comes in, and he's making all these sounds. But, but as he's doing this, he's actually telling a little story there by what he's doing. And that's an interesting thing about Ezekiel, because that's very much the way that he preached and ministered. He'd be, he would be acting out without using words, uh, the prophetic word of the Lord, using symbolism, sometimes pictures drawn on, on a brick or stone. 
uh, that the people would understand uh, what he was talking about, and that's what we see going on uh, in, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 4, it seems. At the beginning of chapter 4, he said, the Lord speaking to him, the Lord's giving him instructions. He says, son of man, take a tile, lay it before thee, and I'll be kind of honing in on Ezekiel 4 and, and later on in John chapter 6. Um, take a tile, this, this big thing upon which you're going to portray something. He says, portray upon it the city, uh, even Jerusalem. Uh, how he did that, probably drawings, maybe he didn't have Plato at that time, but somehow he depicted this city and the people understood what was being depicted uh, upon, upon this tile. And he said in verse 2, and lay siege against it and build a fort. Uh, against it. So, so we're, we're seeing three separate uh, action sermons or illustrations, if you will, in this book, and this is the first of them. Lay siege against this city of Jerusalem, cast a mount against it, set the camp uh, also against it, set battering rams against it round about. If you look at artifacts from, from uh, Assyrian history, when there was a siege upon the city, uh, many of these uh, same things uh, are, are, are talked about uh, in, the, in these things that they have uh, found in archaeological finds in, in recent years. Uh, he said, Moreover, take, take thou unto thee an iron pan, and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city, and set thy face against it, and it shall, and it shall be uh, besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. So he's to have this pan, this siege is going on, uh, to the city of Jerusalem. This is going to be this third siege in 586 B.C. Uh, but if those children of Israel are turning to the Lord right now and crying out, help us, this fight for us, on our, on our, fight on our behalf, the Lord is like this, and he's got his back turned to him. There's this barrier between them, between communication and receiving help in this time. This siege is going to take place. He goes on to explain further in verses 4 through 8. Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon it. Thou shalt bear their iniquity. Now, he's not bearing their iniquity as Jesus bore our iniquity. However, he was of that lineage of the priesthood. And priests would, in a sense, bear the iniquity of the children of God once per year. And they would give a sacrifice and there would be an atonement for sin, so that those sins would be pushed forward unto the time of the death, burial, and resurrection uh, of the coming Messiah. And as a priest and of that lineage, he could uh, indeed do this. And he was to lie upon his side to bear their iniquity in a sense. He said in verse 5, For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days. So each of these days are representing one year, 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And incidentally, when this is talk, when, when we see the word house of Israel or this, this clause, house of Israel mentioned uh, from this time since the captivity of, of the northern ten tribes more than 120 years prior to this in 721 B.C., when, they, when a prophet says house of Israel from this time forth, it's no longer talking about the divided kingdom, but rather it's, it's referring to Judah as the entirety uh, of that kingdom and, uh, and of the children of God although he'll differentiate here in a moment. And when thou hast accomplished them, verse 6, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. And if we look back uh, from roughly a time this was written, that, that 390 years, 
uh, it seems very likely that's around the time uh, when the Bible uh, says that Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh. And he, and he took Pharaoh's daughter uh, unto himself. And, and, and uh, Solomon, of course, made alliances uh, with, with neighboring kingdoms and unfortunately allowed um, many of their customs and cultures uh, to, to infiltrate and to contaminate uh, the children of God, uh, the children of Israel. And he said, when you're on your right side for the iniquity of the house of Judah, roughly 40 days or 40 years, if you take that back, that's roughly to the time of, of the Reformation by Josiah. Although I also thought about the time because this was coming to an end. It also made me think about the 40 years of the children of Israel wandering uh, in the wilderness. And although judgment uh, was taking place, uh, there was also uh, learning that was taking place. There was discipline uh, that was being instilled in them for a time in the future that was going to be a better time. It was, and so it seems uh, that the prophet is showing them, yet beside this siege, this captivity, there is some hope that you need to be aware of. He said, verse 7, Therefore thou shalt set thy face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and thine arm shall be uncovered, and thou shalt prophesy against it. And behold, I will lay bands upon thee, and thou shalt not turn thee from one side to another till thou hast ended the days of thy siege. So this siege is going to take place upon Jerusalem. The, 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 these bands around him, so he can't turn from one side to another, is, in other words, referring to this captivity. Once you're taken captive, uh, you're stuck. Allow them to do it. I've, I've commanded through the prophet Jeremiah for this to be so. And when he talks about the arm, the other arm being uncovered, uh, that is symbolic of the arm of judgment of God uh, that is is uh, coming forth here, that is being unfurled and exposed. And so we see in Ezekiel chapter 4, first of all, that God is talking about this, this siege, this destruction that's going to come upon uh, the city of Jerusalem. And then in the second uh, segment of the chapter, the prophet is giving them the reason for it. Because of their iniquity, because of the idolatry and the years, 430 years of this idolatry. There were, other, there were kings that, 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 that rose and fell during this time. And, and some of these kings were good and they tore down the high places. They tore down the groves and the altars to idolatry. And as soon as that king that was leaning more toward righteousness passed away, the people would resort right back to idols. They would prop up those groves and those idols again. And then there were other kings that would come into place and they would just be wholeheartedly uh, going hand in hand with these works of adultery. So we have the siege in Jerusalem, first in chapter 4. We have the reason for it. And now in verses 9 through the rest of the chapter, we're going to see the horror of what is taking place. And he said in verse 9, he said to take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, fitches, put them in one vessel. And he's telling him uh, to make bread uh, thereof. So there's a combination here of, of vegetables and of uh, various types of grain that are going to be used to make bread. This is not a, a good uh, type of bread. As I, as I looked and researched into this, this is uh, a very poor type, uh, kind, and quality of bread uh, that, these, that these Jews were going to have to consume. And not only would they have this poor type of bread uh, to consume, but in verse 10, it's going to be meted out to them. 
And as the prophet was laying on his side, and, he, and the, every day represented a year, he was laying on his side 430 days. And all this prophet would eat was this very poor, poor quality bread as he was laying on his side, roughly about eight ounces uh, from what I gathered in, ver in various commentaries of bread per day. You want to talk about a, a fun fast. This is a little more than 21 days. It's a little more than, than, than 40 days. It's not no food, but eight ounces of bread. And then depending on what a hen is, and there's some disagreement from, from uh, when, I, when I researched this. In addition to that, half a pound of bread per day, he also had either a half pint or a half quart, somewhere in that vicinity. I would tend to agree it's more toward the lesser amount. Half a pint of water per day. Rations of bread and water. What do you think of rations of bread and water? You th a prisoner. A prisoner. A prisoner of war. Somebody that's in a prison, solitary confinement perhaps. It really is, as, as later on is talked about in this chapter, the staff of bread. And poor quality bread. These prisoners are not being given a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, there might not be that much uh, for them to have at all. And they're just eating what is there. It's a poor quality bread, but this is what's going to sustain you. It'll be just enough uh, to sustain you. It's not going to be uh, uh, anything that's going to delight uh, your taste buds. And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes, and thou shalt bake it with dung that cometh out of man in their sight. Oh, man. And as children may have joked around, Brother Scott, this is not talking about a poop sandwich. Yeah, ooh. That's not what this is talking about. This is rather referring to, you ever heard kids make a joke like that? This is talking about the state of depravity in this famine that they're going into. Okay, they were captives, but this siege was taking place on Jerusalem, and they were going to be in a state of famine. They were going to be in a state of abject poverty, and that's what this poor quality of bread uh, symbolized, and these meager uh, rations, barely enough to sustain you, uh, likewise symbolized. And many countries, uh, eastern countries, and in the, in the, the Near East or, or the Middle East, countries uh, that don't have much, particularly when you get into the winter times for fuel or oil, uh, some of these will use dung, and they would use cow's dung particularly as fuel so that they could cook food. And that's what was going on here. And, and that's why Jeremiah later said, well, I've never touched that what was unclean, because it was permissible under the law. They were not unclean if, they had to resort to, if somebody had to resort to the use of cow's dung as fuel in order to bake food, though it sounds no less appetizing, does it? And the Lord said, even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, whither I will drive them. And the Lord made that exception for Ezekiel. He said, okay. Ezekiel said, look, I've, I've, not, I've not touched that's, that's common and unclean. I've not defiled, polluted myself by eating that which is unclean. The Lord said, okay, you may use cow's dung for this example. But what was going to happen during this siege upon Jerusalem uh, and, and this grave condition they were in and the meager rations they, they would have, they would have to resort to anything. And they would resort to the use of human waste as a fuel in order to cook food. Now, when you're hungry and you're starving, you might resort to some, some drastic things. As I'm staring at my wife, I'm thinking of, uh, gosh, maybe two months ago, and we, you know, she's laughing right now. We went to a, a grocery store that I won't name, 
and cheapskate that I am, I'm always looking in the clearance aisle. And uh, they had what looked to be this delicious cake. Oh, my goodness. It was, it was round. I know it had to be moist and juicy inside of it. It had this icing. I love delicious icing. Although I'm supposed to be adamantly against sugar, I have a sweet tooth. I confess to you this morning. I have, in fact, I have 28 sweet teeth. All of them. And, uh, and I love delicious things. And I looked at it, and I was tempted. But, but strong person that I am, I just thought, oh, that looks nice. And lo and behold, a manager was close by. And he saw me glancing at that, and he walks up, oh, does that look good? I, yeah, it looks pretty good. But he got the idea I wasn't going to buy it. He's like, and I think it was, I don't know, $5 or something like that on this clearance, which that got my attention. And he, and he bargains with me. I've never had this happen in a supermarket. He said, would this interest you for $2? And instantly, I thought the Lord was speaking to me. He was not. As it turns out, I said, yes, that would interest me. And he took out a pen, a Sharpie, I guess, and wrote $2 on that. And there was a clerk nearby. And I proceeded. I was dancing like when Sister Switzer <laughs> found that quarter and was able to get some pork chops behind that shopping cart. And we took this delicious, beautiful masterpiece, this panoramic scene of beauty of a cake with delicious icing on it to the house. And that evening... I had some dinner, and I thought to myself, well, I believe it's time for Daddy to have some cake here. <laughs> and I proceed to get myself a knife. And I cut this cake, and I get out a piece, and I notice this strange coloration right in the very center of the cake. And thank God I noticed it right away. And I could identify it pretty quickly as there was fungus among us. Mold was on this cake. This cake was defiled. And I said, get thee behind me, Satan. That entire cake went into the garbage can. I might as well have taken two pictures of George Washington and burned them with a matchbook instead of buying that defiled cake. And I was so disappointed. My taste buds, which were dripping with the, 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 the delight of anticipation, yeah, now were dripping tears of agony. Now, this mold that we saw was not throughout the cake, but we were not going to eat this. We threw it in the trash. What could be there? Well, maybe there's something could fight us. Maybe there's penicillin in there. All right, that's good for me. But what if you were starving? What if you'd had nothing to eat for weeks on end? Maybe you'd be starting to cut around that area and get something from the side that you could eat. I'll never forget in South Africa, Sister a pool in 2015, and I noticed it several times, seeing people digging through the garbage can, public garbage cans out on the street side to find food that they could eat. I remember reading in a, a biography on, on Robert E. Lee, one of my favorite figures in American history, and it bothers me when I see these idiots tearing down statues to him whom I guarantee have less morals in their body than he had. He was, a, he was a noble man, a noble figure. And in reading in this biography, I remember reading about Confederate soldiers who had gone days on end 
without food. And, and, and General Stonewall Jackson, particularly, would be marching them days at a time. And they would do double time what, what other armies would be expected to do, having nothing to eat, fighting battles, running on pure adrenaline. And then what a joy it was for them when finally they had some rancid bacon that they could eat to sustain their life. You've got a dire choice before you if all you have is some rancid bacon or moldy cake or defiled bread, as they would have in this siege in Jerusalem, or death. And that's the situation that they were being faced with here. I better start looking at my notes a little bit. There was a famine that was coming, and God warned of this, that it was going to happen in Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 26. He said, when I've broken the staff of your bread, the ten women shall break your bed in one oven, and they shall deliver you your bread again by weight, and ye shall eat and not be satisfied. If they turned unto other gods, if they stepped out of alignment with the will of God and the word of God and were disobedient to the word of God but started serving idols... There was famine that was coming, and during this famine, all they were going to have was defiled bread, though unbeknownst to them, when they were serving these idols, they were already consuming defiled bread. Famine is a terrible situation. Famine is a serious situation in which you have a mass of people in a region that is not able to access an adequate supply of food. And as a result of that, you have maltrition, you have disease, if you eat something, that maybe there's something in it that that's, could cause disease. And you have starvation and ultimately death. And when people are faced with death, when you have a desperate situation, you'll take desperate measures. When people are faced with death, they will resort to uh, desperate actions, seemingly crazy uh, actions. And this, thus famine is both a dangerous and a chaotic uh, situation. There are stories we know in the present day of, of famines in recent years where people even resort to cannibalism, and the pe children of God were not above that. We see that prophesied in the very next chapter, chapter 5, and we also see an example of that in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28. Children of God resorting to consuming one, they had nothing else to eat, so we'll eat one another. I'm talking about a dire uh, situation when there is famine. And when I think of famines, there are many famines recorded in Scripture. The first use of the, that word famine is, is a famine in the time of Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, later in chapter 26 in verse 1 of Genesis, there's a famine at the time of uh, Isaac. Uh, but, 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 but God can use these famines for his purpose, and he did so. And Pastor talked about Joseph uh, over the past week because there was coming a famine uh, to, to every land except that land of Egypt. And Joseph underwent so many ups and downs in life. He was in low points. He was imprisoned, enslaved. He was in valleys and, and low points of life. And yet he was able to look back after God elevated him to a position of, if you will, a prime minister of Egypt, the superpower and lone superpower of the world at that time. He was able to look back on all these dire situations, he was able to do, as Pastor said just the other night, he was able to separate his situations from his relationship with God. That's what Pastor had just talked about. He was in these dire situations, but he, didn't, he did not uh, blame the Lord. He did not decide, well, I'm in this situation. I'm going to stop praying. 
uh, I'm going to stop uh, seeking the Lord in my, my own spiritual life. He was able to separate, separate the two and maintain his own relationship with God, his own walk with God, and God elevated him as a result of that. And when this famine came, his family was spared from that because once his brothers came to that place, Judah in particular, to a place of true repentance, bam, things switched around. His entire family was brought into a land that had plenty of food, plenty of sustenance to sustain life, and they were blessed while the world was in the midst of a dire and chaotic famine. Somebody said, praise the Lord in this house. And so God can use a famine as he can use many other things to, to, to turn up the pressure if you will, and that's what he was doing uh, with these, these idolatrous Jews. And just as we can have a physical famine, likewise we can have a condition of spiritual famine. You have a spiritual man, and when you've been born again of the water and of the spirit, there is a spiritual man that must be sustained. My physical man has some basic needs. I need food and water. I need bread, meat, clothing, shelter. I need love and affirmation in my life. I need oxygen to breathe. But at the most basic of these needs and things that I don't, are not supplied by involuntary mechanisms like, like oxygen, we have bread and water or nourishment. And likewise, spiritually, my spiritual man also is in need of nourishment. That's why Jesus said, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Because these needs of nourishment for the spiritual man are, will tend to be less noticeable than physical needs of, boy, I'm hungry and I want lunch in 41, uh, 40 minutes and 11 seconds. But after the new birth, my spiritual man must be sustained. And the Bible speaks of spiritual nourishment in, in many ways, in many places. We read about the milk of the word. We read about the meat of the word, and Jesus uh, said, importantly, I am the bread of life. And Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. When he said bread alone, he's talking about physical bread. He's talking about perhaps the manna of Moses, uh, if you will. But when he said every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, every word is referring to rather spiritual bread or life sustaining bread. The manna, of, uh, the manna of Moses, in other words, is not going to bring everlasting life, but the word of God will bring everlasting life. And I want to call our attention to John uh, chapter 6, please, and verses 47 through 51. I'm turning there in my Bible right now. And in verse, I'll give you just a moment, give me a chance to wet my whistle. In John chapter 6, verse number 47, Jesus speaking. Boy, that air conditioner. Whoops. There. Jesus in John 6 and 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. He said, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. 
This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. He said, I am the living bread. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give uh, for the life of the world. He said, the bread that I will give is my flesh. And and, in just a few chapters prior, chapter 1. He said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And in verse 14, the Word was made flesh. Amen. And so so that living bread, we're we're, we're talking really about the Word of God, we see. But if we go back on to verse number 47, he said, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Now this, along with many other scriptures, are famously uh, memorized, particularly John 3.16, quoted, misused, and misinterpreted for the purposes of false doctrine, usually to justify sin so that, so that the requirements upon me are less than what the Word of God states. Because in John chapter 3, verses uh, 15 and in 16, it says, Whoso believeth on him should have everlasting life. But, if, but he's talking to Nicodemus there. So if we step back a little bit in that same context, in that same chapter, while he's talking to Nicodemus, and it's in, the, it's in the same conversation, he said to him, except a man be born again of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In verse 5, verse 3, he said, except a man is born again of the water and the spirit, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And thus, Jesus is clearly explaining in John chapter 3 that this whoso believeth in, in John 3 verses 15 and 16, and, and this person uh, that believeth in John chapter 6 and verse 47, this whoso believeth is defined as he that is born of the water and of the spirit. In other words, if and only if you obey Acts 2.38 salvation, Uh, Are you included in that whoso believeth from John 3.16 or verse 47 of John 6? And if and only if you have partaken of that living bread, uh, if and only if you have uh, experienced Acts 2.38 salvation, have you and are you partaking of that living bread that leads unto everlasting life? And this is important for the saved and for the unsaved. Because if you have never partaken of that living bread, you need it in order to enter the kingdom of God. And if you have been born again of the water and the spirit, then you still need that that living bread in order to sustain you. Or your spiritual man can get to a place of famine, starvation, and eventually uh, death. And it is this living bread that I need. It is this living bread of the word of God, the spirit of almighty God that I need every day in order to sustain me. I need that living bread. I want that living bread because I don't want to partake of that defiled bread of idolatry. I do not want to partake of the defiled bread that this world has to offer because the defiled bread of the world will not sustain you. The defiled bread of of the love of money. The defiled bread of sexual immorality, of drugs, alcohol, of pornography, of following nonstop sports. The defiled bread of idolatry, of immodest dress, or of false doctrine will not sustain you. It will not bring you true peace. Defiled bread is not going to bring you fulfillment or satisfaction, but it makes you unclean. Defiled bread will not result in everlasting life. It will result in famine in the short run, and in the long run, it will result in death. 
I want the true bread of life in my life. Oh, yes. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, this was Matthew 4, 4. This, Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy 8. This applies in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, uh, just as in the New, because God in the Old Covenant was just as concerned about the inner man and man's character and moral uprightness as he is today. As a matter of fact, the, the concept of circumcision of the heart is not just a New Testament uh, concept. There was physical uh, circumcision since the time uh, of Abraham, and that, that was a physical marker uh, of the men particularly that were children of God before the New Covenant. Uh, uh, but, but once we came into the new covenant and we would born again of the water and the spirit, we are still spoken of as having a circumcision of the heart. And yet in the Old Testament, as an example in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, circumcise yourselves unto the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire. It is different today as we can be filled with his spirit in a way that men previously could not. And we are to grow and to yield fruit of the Spirit, as we've been taught over the, uh, the past week and instructed. But God was very much concerned with the inner man from, from the very creation of man. He was concerned with character. He was concerned with holiness. He was concerned with sound doctrine and behavior in the Old Testament, just as he is today in the New Testament. And, and Jesus did not do away with the law, mind you, the Bible said, Jesus himself said, he came to fulfill the law. And that's what he did. And thus, there are ceremonial aspects of the law uh, that are no longer needed, i.e. dietary laws, because Jesus became our supreme substitutionary sacrifice. The ceremonial ordinances in relation to physical food were intended to keep God's children from idolatrous practices of surrounding nations. No wonder the result of this idolatry for the house of Israel in, in Ezekiel chapter 4 was, you guessed it, famine. As for the church today under the new covenant, while we no longer have to observe the same dietary laws, the principle remains the same. If I partake of the defiled bread of idolatry, and it comes in many forms, and if I allow it to become not the exception but the rule in my life, there is a resultant spiritual famine. Because God is a just God and he's a righteous judge. Now, ultimately, God wants me to repent. He's calling me under repentance. That's, that's the point of this whole thing. Okay, there was this idolatry taking place. God was displeased for hundreds of years. And he was calling people to repentance. And finally, the Lord got to a point where he said, that's enough. You've gone too far. You have tested my patience to the limit that I, that I won't go beyond in, in this circumstance. You have, there's a phrase I'm trying to think of, I heard another preacher use. You have frustrated, Brother T.F. Tenney, you have frustrated the grace of God. There's a lot of churches out there and they'll, they'll put, oh yeah, we, we believe in grace and they'll preach grace. Live however you want to, you're okay, you got the grace of God. That's false doctrine. That is false doctrine. Amen. He is a righteous judge. And there's a time where he will get to where he's had it, where you have frustrated grace to the end. And God says, okay, that's it. And just like with Israel, he brought the siege upon Jerusalem. 
He brought uh, this time of captivity, and he brought famine upon this land. But the story was not over. That's the key thing I want to point out here. He was trying to give them one more chance. There was a remnant that was still going to be, they, they, if they allowed themselves uh, to, be, to be taken captive, he was still calling uh, their attention to repentance, and he was turning up that pressure so their eyes might be open. Their eyes had been shut. They were partaking in idolatry for a period of years, hundreds of years, and truly they were already in a famine. They were in a spiritual famine, and they couldn't even see it. And what they needed in their life was the will of God. They needed to be obedient to the will of God in alignment with the word of God so that he could sustain them and sustain the spiritual man. And they willfully turned away from it. They willfully turned away from the land of their inheritance. They willfully turned away from a land flowing with milk and honey where their crops were blessed. Uh, their, their, their flocks and their cattle were blessed. They had everything that they needed to sustain themselves. And yet they turned unto idolatry because they were tempted and thought, maybe I can have a better life over here. And they began serving this other God. And they could not see the dire condition of famine that they were already in. And God used this situation in hopes that their eyes would open up where they'd say, oh my, this, we are in famine. I see it. And this is serious. And we better get right with God. And God was extending a merciful hand. Thank God for his mercy. We serve a God who's rich in mercy. Oh my, I need his mercy. Because the truth is, even before the house of Israel was in this famine, in that siege upon Jerusalem, they were already in the midst of famine and they didn't even realize it. And it was a spiritual famine. And in this famine of their own making, all that they would have to eat physically was indeed symbolic of all that they were already consuming spiritually. And thus, God was demonstrating to them the reality of their chosen course. Shall we stand? When God brought the children of Israel into the land of inheritance, they were so blessed. They were abundantly blessed. They didn't just have stuff to sustain them. They, they had everything they needed to live the best life. And that's what God gives us. When we're born of the water and spirit and we're walking after God, we're following his word, we're in obeyment to his will, his word, and in alignment with his word, we have the potential to have the very best quality of life that we could possibly have. But we don't want to forget that. We don't want to take our, our eyes off of that. As that song was talking about remembrance, a little earlier. But if we do, thank God that he goes to great length to extend to us the hand of salvation. God is long-suffering to us. He is long-suffering toward us, but eventually his patience can run thin with you and with me. And he has no choice but to allow me to reap what I've sown and to face the consequence. The Lord said in Hosea chapter 4, verse 17, he was frustrated with Ephraim. He said, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. And hopefully his eyes will be opened and he'll see the seriousness of this situation. And he allows sometimes the pressure to build and he allows us 
Sometimes to, to face these serious consequences, these dire situations in life so that our eyes uh, might likewise be opened. He allows that pressure to build so that his call to repentance is that much louder and that much more clear in our eyes and ears. And he does this not because he delights in judgment, not because he delights in, in, in punishment. A father does not delight in, in punishing his son or his daughter, but he does this because he loves us. In Micah, the book of Micah chapter 7 and verse number 18, the prophet wrote, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. And later on in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33 and verse number 11, the prophet wrote, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God has no pleasure in this punishment, though he is a righteous judge. And he's bound by his word. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will, will, it's your choice. What do you will to do? He says, for why will ye die? O house of Israel, why indeed? And that question applies to every man and woman alive today. And if you're listening to this message today, whether in person, online, all hope is not lost. Amen. As evidenced by your hearing this word today, all hope is not lost. It is still God's will for you to come to a place of repentance. Yes, Jesus is coming soon, but you still have an opportunity today. Amen. In Jesus' name. This altar is open today. I wish somebody would come to this altar with your hands raised and seek to partake of the bread of life this morning. Amen. If you've never been born again of the water and the spirit, this bread of life is for you. I, this altar is open to you. If you have been born again of the water and the spirit, but maybe you veered off course even just a little bit and something's been raised in your life perhaps that could almost be akin to an idolatrous situation. Come, partake of the bread of life.